It's a very uh, poignant occasion uh, this afternoon uh, because this is the last time that I shall preach uh, as full-time uh, with the church. And uh, I was really thinking, what should I preach on? Where should I go? And I thought, well, where did I go on the very first occasion that I preached? I preached here many, many times. Uh, preached here first in 1980. Preached a lot of times since then as a visiting preacher. But what was the first thing that we looked at together when we came. Well, I wasn't meant to be preaching on that evening. I had a phone call from Peter in the week. We'd only just moved house. And he said this, I remember it. He said, you're on. I can't remember who it was who couldn't be here, but he said, you're on. And I was pitched straight in. I think it was the 21st of October, 2007. And the text was this, one of my favorite verses in all the scripture. I think many preachers have verses that if you wake them up in the middle of the night and say, you've got to preach now, they'd have the verse and they'd have the message ready. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 3. She happened to come to part of the field belonging to Boaz, or in the authorized version, which has it in this amazing way, her hap was to light upon a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. And that's why we like the authorized version in some ways. It's so poetic, isn't it? Her hap was to light upon a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. And this was our title, the title that first occasion when I stood here after having been called. And this was the question, is God really in control? Is God really in control? And what we did was we surveyed that wonderful story of the book of Ruth, which if you don't know it, you should read it. It's four chapters. It is the most wonderful story illustrating for us. It is an illustration for us of the answer, the resounding answer to that question. Is God really in control? Yes. Yes, he certainly is. So I was a bit of a Mr. Grumpy over Christmas because Christmas got cancelled, and uh, it was just a dark, wet evening, and I just went out and just walked around and just asked the Lord, where should I go for this last occasion? And this little verse, or part of it, came to me. My times are in his hand. Don't normally prepare messages like that, walking around in the dark, feeling a bit grumpy, but... Uh, it came very forcibly to me, this particular verse, this part of a verse, really. So in between, there have been about 800 sermons over the last 16 years. I pray there'll be, there'll be others, but uh, uh, in a different capacity. That verse in the book of Ruth, you know, her hat was to light, that, that is, that's the heart of the story. And that's illustrative. Here we have a part of a verse which is the heart of a psalm. And it's the same aspect, really. Uh, the same questions that's being asked. Is God really in control? And the psalmist David says, my time, my times are in his hands. So I want us just to think, first of all, of the context. The context, they're probably familiar verse, uh, words to you in this verse. And the context really is uh, 
in four ways. Uh, we won't look at the psalm in detail. You can go home and read it, do your homework, uh, and think of it like this. The psalm is, first of all, full of God. The psalm is full of God. If you run your finger down it, you will come again and again and again to references to God, to the Lord, to him, to he, and so on. It's full of God. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? It shouldn't surprise us that a psalm is full of God. It's full of Christ also. Because if you run your finger down it carefully this evening, look for the Lord Jesus. Because he is here in this psalm. It's not that aspect that we're going to look at, but you can do that. But it's a bit like looking over a bridge you know, a parapet into a stream. I think of those wonderful streams when we used to go to Stambridge Earls and we used to look over into those streams and it was so clear you could see the fish uh, teeming there. And if you look into this psalm, you'll see it's full of God. Secondly, it's full of trouble. And you may say, well, that's, if it's full of God, how can it be full of trouble? Surely the two things don't work. But that's the reality, isn't it? David is a man of reality. He's writing about the reality of life. And though his psalm and his heart and his mind is full of God, the psalm is full of trouble. David hints at it right at the start, but from verse 7, it really gets going, doesn't it? He says, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities. He's in adversities. Look at him in verse 9. He's crying his eyes out. My eye wastes away with grief. My soul and my body, my life is spent with grief. My tears with, uh, with sighing. Verse 11, I'm a reproach among my enemies. And when he gets to verse 12, he says, I'm just forgotten like a dead man. And it might not surprise us that the psalm is full of God. But actually, it shouldn't surprise us that the psalm is full of trouble. Uh, over Christmas time, because we've not been able to see family and everything else, been doing quite a lot of reading, been reading about the Pilgrim Fathers. What an amazing story, the Pilgrim Fathers. What a noble ideal to leave these shores and leave the shores of Holland and to go over to the new world, to go over what is now to America, to go over and their intention was for the purity of worship and they were Christians going over there to live together in a community and to be able to worship God and farm together and grow together and educate their children together. Full of God and full of trouble. It is quite astounding, actually, really, the trouble and the difficulty that they had. So, Christian, um, you know, we want to be full of God. The Psalm's full of God. David's full of God, but full of trouble also. It's a reality. But the third thing we see, what, what this psalm is full of, is prayer. It's full of prayer. It's his reaction to trouble. It's his response to trouble. It's his recourse in trouble. Those verse 9, uh, we read it, didn't we? Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. And this psalm is a psalm full of God, full of trouble, but full of prayer. It is, it is a prayer really all the way 
through in different aspects. And then the third thing is it's full of assurance. Full of assurance. Troubles rock us, don't they? Troubles knock us for six. Troubles cause us difficulties. And, and how to reconcile all the difficulties that we go through in life. So we are full of prayer. We should be full of prayer. It should be our recourse. But here is David and he's full of assurance. Isn't he? You can read it. And again, go away and read these things and you'll see. He says in verse 19, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. And when he gets to the end of his psalm, which we'll see later on as well, he says, Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful. He's full of assurance, despite all his troubles. So here's the verse, or the six words of our verse. My times are in your hand. It's not quite the middle verse, but it's not far off, is it? Verse 15. And it seems to me that all this, all the other things we've mentioned, they all circle around this statement. This statement's really at the heart of it. It's a bit like the story of Ruth. The whole of the book of Ruth, the whole story circles almost around the fact that it just so happened that she gleaned in the field where Boaz was the owner of that field. So we're going to come back to these things at, at the end. But what we're going to do is take these six words and we're going to look at them a bit like a triangle because they are three, three sets of two words. My times are in your hands. It's a triangle. There are three, three sets of two words, and they really help us to understand what David is thinking, what he is saying, what God has prompted, inspired him to say in the midst of everything else that's going on in this psalm. So here's part one, if you like. Part one. There are three things about part one. Part one, my times. You can actually draw a triangle if you want to, if you're making notes. But my times. My times. Three things about my times. Bearing in mind everything that we've said in our introduction. The first thing is this. It's personal. Isn't it? It's personal. David says, my times. And because this is in scripture, and it's in front of you, what do you read when you read verse 15? What do you read? My times. You see, it was so personal to David but it becomes, through Scripture, personal to us. We can read Scripture in that way. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable to us. And in this case, it's so profitable when we understand it's so personal. My times are in your hands. Secondly, it's plural. 
Notice, notice what he says. He says, my times, my times, it's plural. It's all the times. It's the good times. It's the bad times. And it's the times like we've had over Christmas, the ugly times. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all the times. I was reminded about the Queen. Do you remember? I was trying to remember how long it might have been. And it was 1992 when the Queen said in her speech, it had been an annus horribilis, bit of Latin. We don't really need to know much Latin, do we, to understand what she meant. It had been a really horrible year. Been a horrible year. And for some of us, some of you on Zoom, it might have been a horrible year. Well, certainly parts of the year have been horrible, difficult things. Uh, for the Queen, she was referring to the fact that there was that terrible fire at Windsor Castle and that three members of her family, the marriages had broken up. It had been a really difficult year for our late Queen. And there are years and times, aren't there, which are horrible times. And there are good times. There are good times. But we have good news and great things and enjoyment. And there's everything in between. All the times, that's what David's saying, all the times. Now, the times for David weren't too bright, were they? In verse 4, he says there was a time, really, when, when he'd been put into a trap. Pull me out of the net, which they've secretly laid for me. Now, we don't know the full set of circumstances, but there are some circumstances here which are not very nice, are they? To think that there's people who want to trap him, want to get you. If you have that situation where you feel at work, you know, you feel you're being got at and it's not, it's not a pleasant time. We read in verse 10 how there was grief in his life and sighing and failing strength in every sense. In verse 11, he said, I'm a reproach. People reproach me. People, people don't want to know me. People walk on the other side of the road. People avoid me. He said, I'm a forgotten man. I'm just like a dead man. They've not been good times, have they? They've not been good times. And he says, my times. Personal, plural, perpetual. Perpetual. David doesn't give us a start date, does he? He doesn't say, my times are in your hands since last Wednesday or this year. He doesn't give us an end date. I'm worried, I'm sure Roger is, about the Flying Scotsman because the Flying Scotsman's contract runs out today. And it can't run on the tracks anymore. There's an end date. I'm sure they'll find a way, won't they, Roger? But David doesn't give us an end date, does he? He doesn't say, my times, until the end of the year. He doesn't give us any date. Because he means a constant date, doesn't he? It's a constancy. Richard was talking to us this morning about a date. But there's no date here. My times, all my times, it's perpetual. Vary in content, in intensity, in variety, 
but perpetual inconsistency. My times, those already passed, today, those in the future. My times, it's personal, it's plural, it's perpetual. That's good, isn't it? Part two, side two of our triangle. Your hand, hang on a minute, you may say, what about the second bit, uh, uh, R in? Well, if this is a triangle, we could go any way around the triangle, couldn't we? We've got three sets of two words to go in. And I would suggest to you that this is perhaps the way we should go, because we've thought about my times. Now let's think about your hand. Whose hand? Well, obviously it's God's hand, isn't it? David, David is writing this psalm. It's full of God. And in the context, of course, he's, he's referring to God. My times, your hand. Three things about your hand. Three things. One is the hand of power. It is the hand of power. Did you notice my times is plural? You notice what it says about God's hand? It is singular. Now, I've looked at all the versions, and there's only one or two who say it's plural. I think in the original it's single. How many hands has God got? That's a good question. We had some good questions this morning, didn't we? How many hands has God got? Mm, David thinks none. Well, David's not been reading his Bible much, has he? Because it does say in the Bible it's called an anthropomorphism, God's hands. Look it up in the, in the dictionary. Look, Google it. How many hands has God got? Well, there's many, many verses which refer to God's hands. But when it refers to God's hand, God's hand, so often it refers to the hand of power. The hand which is a powerful hand. God speaks of himself. The scriptures which he has inspired speak of God having hands. And often it is a singular hand, and that's what it is here. It, it's a singular hand. My times in your hand. Let's look up one or two references. You can go there with me or just listen to them. Uh, drop back if you, if you want to into Exodus chapter 13. We began, didn't we, our series on journeying with God in Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. They're heading out of, uh, of the land of Egypt. And in Exodus 13 and verse 14, here is the, in the, here is the instruction to the children of Israel. So it shall be when your son asks you in a time to come saying, what is this? What is this? Well, what is this? It was the, uh, uh, the uh, feast of unleavened bread and so on. What is this? That you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt 
out of the house of bondage. And here's the sort of the thought. It's the strength of hand, God's hand. We won't look up all the verses, but uh, later on in Deuteronomy, uh, in Deuteronomy 5.15, it's, it's in a repeat of the Ten Commandments. It refers to God's hand in a similar way in Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. I'll just read that one to you because I've got it open here. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. When they get into the, into the land of, uh, of Canaan, and Joshua is leading them. In Joshua 4, verse 24, it says this. Joshua said that all the peoples of the earth may know of the hand of the Lord that it is mighty. So when we read of God, we read with, of him with hands. Though God is spirit and he doesn't actually have hands. But it's an anthropomorphism. It's, it's, it's just a description of God so that we can understand God because we know what hands do. Hands hold things, hands move things, hands wield things. And God wields his hands of great power. I, looked, I spent some time looking at the concordance at this, and uh, I found this verse, which I thought was great. I'll just tell you this verse, Daniel 5, 23. Daniel says to Belshazzar, God who holds your breath in his hand. Belshazzar. <coughs> Great empire of Babylon, Persia. Daniel says, God holds your breath in his hand. Humble yourselves, says Peter to Christians, under the mighty hand of God. My times, my times, God's hand. Wonderful, isn't it? Now, unless we should be fearful, we could be fearful, couldn't we? Because when, when power falls into the hand of someone awful, somebody with uh, terrible intentions, into the hands of a dictator, it's not a good thing, is it? But God's hand is described in this mighty way, but also in a way where it is tender and guiding and protecting. So if you just drop back a couple of Psalms, uh, two or three Psalms to Psalm 17 and verse 7. Psalm 17 and verse 7. Let's read there. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. And David there uh, attaches the marvelous loving kindness of God with his mighty hand. In verse 21 of our psalm, it talks about God's marvellous loving kindness. That's a lovely phrase, isn't it? God's marvellous loving kindness. We marvel at it. Well, Psalm 37, go a few psalms on from Psalm 31. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. With his hand. See, God's hand is mighty and powerful. The very breath of the, 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 the emperors of the world is, is in his hand. He can move a mighty group of two million people across the face of the earth over all obstacles with his mighty hand, but it's a guiding, 
caring, loving, wonderful hand. And I love the book of Ezra. And in the book of Ezra, when Ezra comes on the scene, he's not there at the beginning, but he's there by chapter 7. And after chapter 7, if you read the book of Ezra, Ezra has a little phrase which he keeps repeating over and over again. The good hand of our God was upon us. And maybe Nehemiah heard him say that a bit. And he says it too in his book. The good hand of our God was upon us. My times in his powerful hand. Second word is providence. Providence. Providence, because what well, we've hinted at, haven't we, that, that this powerful hand is a hand which is guiding and shepherding and overruling in a wonderful way for God's people. And that is where really the Old Testament is a wonderful storybook uh, where it gives us uh, illustrations. And the story of Ruth is such a powerful one, isn't it? When we think of what happens there, there's famine. And then there's loss and bereavement and there's journeying and there's tears and sadness and parting and bitterness and enough to wrench your, your, the tears from you. Because when you read of that story and you think of yourself in that situation, that what is happening here? This is all going so terribly wrong. Uh, they come back, don't they, to Bethlehem. Uh, and what does Naomi say? Oh, call me Mara. Call me bitter. But what hand has been at work? What hand in the times of Naomi and Ruth? My times are in his hand. So it just so happened that she gleaned in the field that belonged to Boaz. How remarkable, how wonderful it is. God's great hand of power his tender hand is a providential hand it is a hand that deals with the big picture and the small picture it's a hand that produces a baby in the arms of Naomi who will be the one from whom David will come it produces a child who comes from heaven in a Bethlehem manger, who is Jesus in the line of Boaz and David, because this is a providential hand. This is at work. My times are in that hand. Thirdly, it's a permanent, permanent hand, permanent hand. David says this 3,000 years ago. Millions of saints have said it every year since, haven't they? There's nothing that changes. My times, whatever century we're in, wherever we are in the world, whatever nation, whatever country, however isolated, however blessed it seems, however desperate the Christian can say, that hand is a permanent hand. My times are in that permanent hand. And if you think of the most awful, what is the most awful, fearful, terrible thing that ever happened to anyone in this world? 
Isn't it the cross of the Lord Jesus? Where the Son of God, spotless, pure, the Savior of the world, is nailed to a cross. And running through the mind of the Savior, running through the mind of the Lord Jesus, as his last breaths come, is this psalm. Do you notice that? Psalm 31 and verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. David prayed all those years before, and Jesus prays it. There's a permanence, a wonderful, glorious truth of permanence in this hand. Christ on the cross commits himself into the hand of God his father. So this very psalm, this very psalm is in the mind of Christ on the cross. He could say, as it were, my times, this time on the cross, is in your hand. He asked it should be as he breathed his last breath. So it's permanent. When I was in hospital on Friday, I went for my little operation on Friday, and uh, it's a wonderful team. It's just so lovely. We're sharing this morning about the wonderful um, uh, common grace of God when you're in a situation like that, in a little operating theater, and uh, they get you all ready and everything else. Uh, and then the surgeon comes in uh, and shakes your hand and, and you, you talk to the surgeon. And the surgeon does, it, does what she had to do and so on, sewed me up again. And, uh, and then she said, I'll now, I'll now leave you in the hands of and uh, handed me over to a nurse to look after me. Now I'd been in her hands. And uh, I was glad she knew what she was doing, uh, sewing me up. And uh, yet she said, I'm going to hand you over to somebody else now. And I thought, you know, at that moment, that God never hands us over to anyone else. To anyone else. My times are in your hand. There's a permanence about that. He doesn't hand us over to an angel. He doesn't hand us over to anyone else. He holds us in his hand, says David. Are you a Christian? If you're not a Christian, whose hand are you in? That's the question. Before we go on to that last bit of the triangle, what's the hand that you're relying on? We're not just talking about people here, listening here, and people on Zoom. We're talking about people who will listen to this message maybe in years to come. We keep having that. We keep hearing that. People listening to a message years and years later. What we're challenging is this. Whose hand is your life in? Well, there's a lovely hymn which we sing, which is the story of a man called Samuel Stone. And this is what Samuel Stone came to in his life. He said this, weary of earth and laden 
with my sin. I looked at heaven and longed to enter in, but there no evil thing can find a home. And yet I hear a voice that bids me come. The gospel is a voice. It's the preaching of God's word saying, come, you can come. And this is what he says. So vile I am. How dare I hope to stand in the pure glory of that holy land before the whiteness of that throne appear. Yet there are hands stretched out to draw me near. The hands of the Lord Jesus are open hands to welcome us into his presence, into heaven. So that when that day comes that we heard of this morning, there'll be a hand ready to welcome us into heaven. Part three. Part three of our triangle. Are in. My times, personal, plural, Perpetual, your hand, powerful, providential, permanent, are in. What, what, how does that happen? How does it happen? How can it be that you, a sinner, me, a sinner, how can it be that we undeserving, what, what do we deserve of God's mercy? What do we deserve of God? Why should he look upon us? There are millions upon millions upon millions of people in this world. And millions have lived in all the years that this world has been. Why should it be that you can say, that I can say, my times are in your hand? It's grace, isn't it? It's amazing grace. It's the love that we thought about in that hymn this morning. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And David says, it's not a question of they were in, or may be in, or will be in. He says they are in, doesn't he? They are in. God's name is I am. Whenever you say it, it's always, it's always current, isn't it? It's always there. I am. This is the same. Are in. The tense, if there is such a tense, is the perpetual present. They are in. They are in. They're in now. They'll be in tomorrow. They're always in. We'll go up and down. We'll be all over the place as Christians. We'll, we'll be in the low places and the high places. We'll be far away. We'll be near to God. But they're always there. My times are in his hands. In his hand. So here's a psalm. It's full of God. It's full of trouble. It's full of prayer. It's full of assurance. Three C's to finish. I can always come to God. 
I can always come to him. Because my times are in his hand. So he's, he's not going to ever wave me away. I'm too busy. I'm so glad that that nurse didn't say on Friday, oh, well, I haven't got time to look after him. God always accepts us. Always we can come. Prayer is always available. Calling on him, as David did in this psalm, it's full of trouble. He calls on God and God is there and he has this assurance that my times are in his hand. So come is the first thing. The second is confess. Because like we said, we don't always feel like this, do we? We do not always feel like this. And Mr. Grumpy here was walking around the streets a little over, feeling anything like this. Anything but like this. Because Christmas had been ruined. And I didn't want COVID. And Anne didn't want COVID. And we, we wanted our family to be together. And nothing was going right. And everything was going wrong. <laughs> But I had to come to confess that that was a wrong attitude and a wrong understanding and a wrong application. And it was wonderful, therefore, to come to this psalm and to come by it and with it and through it, to come to say, Lord, I confess that I don't always feel like this, but you are always So the last thing is this, the last C is this, confidence. Confidence. This is an incredibly confident psalm. It is very confident, not an arrogant confidence. We don't like arrogant confidence, do we? Arrogance is not a good thing. But confidence is good when what or who we put confidence in is secure and true and real. And David says, that's it. That's what I want to write about here. I, I, I am in trouble. I've been in difficulties. I've cried out to God. He's always been there for me. So what I want to tell you is this, verses 23 and 24, is what he's sort of signing off with. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. It's a good thing, isn't it? When a man has proved it himself, he can say it to others. It doesn't really ring very well, does it? When somebody from the front somewhere says something, and you think, I wonder if you've ever proved that. But when a man stands and can say, like David says here, it's true, it's all true. Now you should know this too. You experience this too. This God is your God. Your times. Say it, my times are in your hand. It's a great text, isn't it? For the end of the year, for the new year. To remind us looking back, to encourage us looking forwards, and to challenge us. If you've not yet ever really come to the Lord Jesus as your Saviour, to say, where are my times? Where am I going? What is underpinning my life? And who 
is the one who will be there on that last day with his hand stretched out to reach for me and to call me home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you then for this uh, psalm, this personal psalm of David. We thank you, Lord, that it has been preserved so wonderfully for us so that we might look at it. We thank you for this little phrase at the heart of it. And we pray, Lord God, that you would apply it to every heart, those listening on Zoom, those here now and those in the future, Lord, who might hear this message. We pray it that you may be glorified and honoured, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there's a little hymn which is based on this, and I asked Sarah if she could find a tune for us. Uh, she's the chief musician here today. Uh, so Sarah's going to lead us. My times are in thy hands, 755. trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress, a defense to save me. Into your hand I commit my spirit. My times are in your hand. Amen.